Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing jim rogers has a knack for spotting opportunities way ahead of others guided by his ultra simple investment philosophy jim has built a following few can match we talk investing in times of inflation investing in times of war and what's the next big long term trade we obviously talk gold silver and commodities in general and we talk quite a bit on india listen in so jim uh, welcome uh, to the equity master investor hour uh rahul i'm delighted to be here i'm a fan always a pleasure to have you uh, jim i want to start off this podcast uh, discussion way back in the 60s when you got started in this world of money if you will and uh, the the 60s were a very interesting period i guess the 60s and the early 70s and the 70s uh you had uh you know you had the the dollar peg uh you know breakdown on the 15th of august 1971 you had the silver price spike you had the gold price spike you had the commodity spikes the oil spikes the reason i want to start with the 60s is probably because 60s and 70s is uh it was a pretty tumultuous period in in it hindsight what say that again it was a very tumultuous period uh, yes yes uh, yes yeah so yes yes so i want to start off with asking you how was it to live through that period in your initial years well rahul as i look back uh they've all been complicated and difficult periods i have friends who say gosh it used to be so easy and i said never been easy for me i don't ever remember when it was easy you know if they made money they thought it was easy anyway it's always been complicated certainly the 70s were a complicated a uh, period difficult period for many people uh somehow or another we survived i survived uh there was inflation there were lots of problems and we have inflation again we have lots of problems a major difference role now and the 70s is in the 70s the united states was still a creditor nation but now the united states is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world so there are differences uh in the 70s we didn't know about india we didn't know about china in fact right. you now we all know about india we all know about china so there are differences now than there were before yeah so uh, to understand a little bit more about your sort of uh, career path uh you know uh of course you uh, you're you're well known for co-founding the quantum fund uh so and that was founded was the late 60s early 70s 1970 basically 1970 right in the middle there you go <laughs> so uh talk to me a little bit about that uh what uh, i i basically i'm trying to i've spoken to you in the past yes, and i have yes. a sense of your views and i'm trying to dig deeper in this pod long form podcast if you will just to try and understand 
you, the person behind the view, and what goes into why is Jim the way he is now, and why does he give the opinion that he gives now? So tell me a little bit about why you quit your job. I think you guys were working together, not working together. You uh, co-founded the Quantum Fund, and tell me a little bit about that period. Well, yes, but Raul, again, that's over 50 years ago when we started the Quantum Fund. You might as well ask me about my first wife. But <laughs> since you asked the question, um, well, for a variety of reasons, uh, my partner and I were working on another firm. We had a hedge fund, but then Congress passed some regulations, which made it in, impossible for us to continue working at another firm. So we had to start on our own. Hooray! Hooray for some bureaucrats making <laughs> problems. Uh, we started around. We had very little money. We were two of us and a secretary when we started. But we both loved what we were doing. And so we were successful. So, uh, and you were starting a new business in this troublesome time, in this chaotic time. Uh, uh, how did you, well, what do you remember? Let's say, let's take one of these examples. 15th August, 1971. You know, Nixon goes and says, you know, we are not going to honor the peg anymore. We won't swap the dollars for gold, I guess, anymore. So how was it like living through that period and how did you deal with it when it came to business? Well, we didn't have much choice. I do remember well because I actually, it happened on a Sunday night and I had not been aware of it until I got to work on Monday morning. And oh my gosh, the world was changing rapidly. You know, the American stock market was going through the roof. Uh, there were many problems. Uh, so And we were short America and long Japan, and Japan was collapsing. Uh, all in one day, that, that week was a very difficult and complicated week. Uh, in the end, of course, it was good to be short America and long Japan, but not that week, not that week. Uh, Mr. Nixon thought he was doing the right thing. Uh, that remains to be seen. Many people in history might indicate he did the wrong thing. But who cares now? It's over 50 years ago, and we've all moved on and adjusted. Um, what I remember from those days was that, you know, I loved what I was doing. Uh, I would love for the market to be open seven days a week. I loved it so much. That was my passion. Uh, I spent a huge amount of time. But my friends said I was crazy. I was working so hard. I didn't think I was working. I just thought I was having fun. Your enthusiasm is infectious. I must say that. So uh, going back still with that decision of Nixon, how much, I know you, you refer to it now, but I still want to ask you that question. How much do you hold that one particular decision responsible for what has transpired in the world in the last few decades, which is a very like a inflationary environment, if you will, not in terms of a typical inflation number, but uh, liquidity in terms of money supply over the decades? Well, there are those who say that, you know, when when Nixon took us away from gold convertibility before, if you showed up at the Treasury and you were the Bank of India, say, the U.S. would give you gold if you brought in some uh, U.S. dollars. Nixon said, no, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So there are those who say that that was at least a constraint on the U.S. government if they had the threat that somebody would come in and ask for gold. Uh, once that constraint was removed, then the theory is that governments, our government, the U.S., which was the largest in the world, could print all the money it wanted. The facts are certainly where we have printed huge amounts of money and run up huge, huge, huge debts since then. 
So there may be something to it. The United States at that time was a creditor nation. Now we're the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. And the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the U.S. prints money all the time. And one's hoping, and one's now wondering when they pull, when they take the foot off the pedal, what's going to happen, right? <laughs> if they slow down the printing. The world is so used to all that liquidity. Yes, yes. And uh, whether the gold, the quote gold convertibility was a constraint or a restraint or not in those days, who knows now looking back on it. But we certainly know that there are no restraints on any central banks other than brains. There are no constraints at all now. And many of them print, print, print. I mean, we may run out of true trees, Raul, <laughs> printing so much money. So, uh, <laughs> in that phase, uh, Jim, what was the what was your first investment, and when did you make it pre, pre uh, in your life? When was the first investment? What was it, and what came of it? Well, my first investment, going back to back when I was a, a kid, we. I uh, used to, I had the concession at baseball games to sell peanuts and Coca-Colas and I made some money. And at one point I had a hundred dollars saved up and my father and I went down and bought some calves, baby cows. Um, and with the idea, we turned them over to a farmer, the idea he was going to raise the calves and we would sell them when they were grown and we'd get rich. Never heard about that money again. Uh, <laughs> I, when I was at on Wall Street, I went back and looked to see what happened in that period of time. And I so I realized it was the Korean War and everything was skyrocketing in price, any, any natural resource or commodity. Uh, and I also noticed that, oh, after the Korean War ended or after the inflationary boom ended, all commodities collapsed in prices. So the reason I didn't hear about those calves anymore was they collapsed and we lost. I lost everything. I found out later. But when I was 12, my first investment, I was I bought some baby cows and lost everything. I didn't know why until later when I figured it all out. And uh, that's a very interesting story. And when did you put, uh, uh, when did you make your first investment in the stock market or commodity market or whichever market you were uh, looking at? Well, uh, in the 60s, uh, I, was, I was working for a, a man in a grocery store. He said, oh, my friend is starting an insurance company. Why don't you invest? I did. I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know what a stock was, but I, I trusted this guy. So I went and bought a few shares. I don't know, $100. I don't know what it was. I don't remember now. Uh, of shares in this insurance company and didn't hear anything about it. Then I realized <laughs> later it didn't do well. It didn't do well, but I do, I do know that maybe 10 years or so after I looked it up and it had begun, begun succeeding. And so I got, I got my money back. Oh, that's nice. To get so your my money investing back. experience, my first investment experience with first couple were not very good. Uh, you got your money back. That's a big deal. A lot of people I talked to on the podcast, you know, blew up their first investment, didn't get anything back. Well, I got my money back after a long time, yes. And okay, so now I'm going to talk about, uh, so you're, at, you're starting the quantum fund and you're starting to do all these great, you go on to do all these great things. Which was the first big call you made when you were at quantum? Well, I don't remember that, but I do remember in that period of time, must have been probably 1970, 
I decided that the markets were going to collapse. And I sold short, I bought, I sold short, well, no, I bought puts, I bought puts. And lo and behold, within five months, I had tripled my money when everybody else was going bankrupt around me. And I, and I actually sold my puts on the day the market hit bottom. Thought I was really smart. I said, oh boy, this is easy. I'm going to be rich someday. And I waited and I waited for the market to rally, which I thought it would. It rallied for a few months and then I sold short again. But two months after I short, I, saw, I lost everything. I completely lost everything. I didn't have any staying power. Got margin calls, of course. Um, and interestingly enough, Raul, I shorted six companies. They all went bankrupt eventually, but I lost everything first. It was a depressing period of time. But I didn't have any choice except to keep trying and keep going and start over, which I did. How did that experience shape you as an investor? Did you well, tell me? I better first of all, tell me that market knows a lot more than I do. A lot I didn't know about markets. It also taught me that a lot of people in the markets did not know much. I mean, I told you all six of the companies went bankrupt, but didn't stop the market from driving those stocks those up a whole lot, forcing me out. Uh, so I realized I better learn more about trading and the other people in the markets and. Better be more careful. I better have some reserves. I better have some liquidity. That reminds me of this statement, right? Uh, the market can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. Absolutely. Uh, the market can through. stay irrational longer than you can stay <laughs> solvent. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, 1990s. So in the 90s, you, of course, went on that famous bike ride. I, I just pulled out some numbers, 160,000 kilometers. And uh, in the late 90s, you went on a, you took a car, a customized car I read somewhere, and you went around 245,000 kilometers. So the 90s, I don't know what, you know, you spent, you probably circled the globe how many times if you add up all those thousands of kilometers. So uh, how did that, how did that help shape your thinking? in terms of everything, life, investments, anything? Well, all my life, I had said to myself, I want to go around the world on a motorcycle. Lo and behold, and in fact, that's why I retired in 1980. And one of the first things I set out to do was to fulfill my lifelong ambition of driving around the world on a motorcycle. But you may remember the 80s. There was still the Cold War, the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, Red China. So it's pretty much absurd. But I kept trying and I eventually got permission to go through Russia, to go through China. And so off I went. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to have adventure. And lo and behold, I did it and had a lot of fun. It certainly taught me a lot about the world. One of the things I realized was, oh, communism is dead. Nobody wants to be a communist anymore. If they do, they want to be a rich socialist. They don't want to be a poor socialist, a poor communist anymore. So though I could see that the world was changing, I see that China was beginning to boom, and that led me to the idea that maybe commodities would be a good place to be. Uh, I realized there were various cycles, long cycles in commodities. So for my next trip, uh, I wanted to invest in commodities, but I knew I couldn't since I'd be driving around the world. So I said, well, why don't I invest in an index but there were no decent commodity indexes, so I had to start my own. 
in order to invest in the commodity index while I drove around the world. Well, so this is after your uh, your bike tour or your car one? The, well, there was the car, it was during the car one, the late 90s, that I wanted to invest in commodities, uh, but I couldn't because I didn't know an index that was decent. So I started my own index in 1998, 1999, so I could drive around the world uh, and have commodity investments while I drove. Wow. So uh, the motorcycle trip was 1990, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. I was not interested in commodities then. Although I did learn by seeing what was happening in the world that commodities might have a new bull market someday. And uh, the next trip solidified that when you had an index while you were- It was very clear, very clear on the second trip what was happening in the world and that demand was growing everywhere. India was changing, China, Russia, everywhere. So you preempted my question because I was going to ask you, that when you drove through India and China, how did India and China look to you then? Let's take China first, in the early 90s when you crossed it. Well, in my trips around the world and around China, I could see that China was changing dramatically and it was gonna be the next great country in the world. And this was early 90s, this was early 90s. Yeah, you know, I realized in the 80s, but on the 90s, when I drove around the world, I really could see it, you know, big time. Uh, China, China is the only country in the world that's had recurring periods of greatness. Great Britain was great once. Rome was great once. Egypt was great once. But China had been great three or four times at the top. But they've also collapsed, had catastrophe three or four times. But they're the only country that after long periods of catastrophe, they've started over and risen to the top again. I could see after my first trip that that was happening again. And it was confirmed very, very vividly on my second trip that China was going to be, was rising and was going to be a huge, huge successful nation. And, uh, uh, and India, how, was the, how, was, how did India look then in the early 90s? Well, if you can only visit one country, Raul, in your lifetime, I suggest you visit India. Uh, It's an astonishing place, Uh, man-made sites, natural sites. Uh, China had man-made sites, but they destroyed most of them during the Cultural Revolution and other periods of upheaval. Uh, But India had all these man-made and natural sites, food, smells, everything. The beautiful women, smart guys, smart women too. Uh, No, if you can only visit one country, it should be India. But I also realized more and more that India had this unbelievable bureaucracy and politicians who didn't really trust or believe in capitalism. Uh, You know, the Indians learned uh, bureaucracy from the English, and then they took it to a higher plane. They took it even worse. You know, the Indians are very good at some things, including making bureaucracy worse than ever. And it still does have a very bad bureaucracy, as you probably have gotten better, gotten better, but still. So, yeah, that's the one big change that we see in India, that it's got much better, but it's there. You know, you're going to come up against the bureaucracy every now and then, but uh, it's getting better. You're, you know, bang on on that. So uh, uh, did, did you have an investment view on India those days, early 90s? I was not invested in India. You know, India 
I think it was probably the early 90s that India saw that the world was opening up. Yep. India decided to open up too. They but started they, privatizing, but for several years, they only privatized one company and that was a bakery. So India was taking its time as far as opening up like many other countries in the world. Yeah, yeah. For us, privatization was selling small stakes in Indian companies, but the bakery, you're right, was sold lock, stock and barrel. It was a company called, I think it was Modern Bakery or something. <laughs> they made I bread. don't remember the name, but I know that from after when India decided to open up like the rest of the world, it took a long time. It was only one bakery, one company of bakery that was privatized. But just as an aside, that bakery was bought by what is now called Unilever. <coughs> well, I'm delighted that somebody made a lot of money off that bakery that finally was privatized. <laughs> Okay, so so you've done these trips, and uh, it's around this time, early early two thousands, that you actually relocate to the Far East, right? You actually set up, move lock, stock, and barrel to Singapore. Well, for many years after my travels in China, I would say to people, China, China, China. They always said, no, 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 Japan, Japan, Japan. And I would say, if you have children, you better, or grandchildren, you should teach them Chinese. They, of course, said, no, Japanese, Japanese, Japanese. But anyway, I finally had a child uh, and I started teaching her Chinese. But I realized very quickly that if I was serious, that I was going to have to take her to a city where she had to speak Chinese. Otherwise, you know, many people told me, oh, yeah, it works for a few years, but then they get they won't speak it anymore because they, they're embarrassed. They think that all their friends speak English, and so they should speak English. So we realized that we were serious. We had to move to a Chinese-speaking city, so we moved to Asia uh, in 2000. We tried 2003, 2004. We experimented with cities. And in 2007, we finally moved to Singapore full-time. Was there any uh, other than giving your daughter exposure to China, uh, the Chinese language? Uh, did you sort of like uh, plan your next, uh, not investment per se, but your investment horizon being more focused on the Far East as a, against the developed markets? Had it, did it play any role in that? Well, we moved here specifically so that my children would know Asia and speak Mandarin. But of course, once I was in the middle of it, I'd already seen what was happening in China and in Asia. Uh, once we were in the middle of it, it just was even reinforced over and over again how China, how, China, uh, how Asia was changing dramatically. Even India, yeah. even the bureaucracy in India was starting to yeah. change. Yeah, we, have, yeah, we get the. Uh, it's a well-deserved, uh, you know, uh, view on India that, you know, our bureaucracy has got in the way of development for so long. There's, of course, a certain element of bureaucracy that is needed for the systems to function. But like you said, we took the British idea and took it to a whole new level. But uh, you were going into Indian bureaucrat's office, you couldn't even see the bureaucrat. There was so much paper piled up on his desk and all over the office. That is the typical Indian bureaucrat. That's right. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I love India with passion, but wow. Yeah. When, when was the last time uh, you came to India? Oh, I don't know. I haven't traveled much since the virus. It's very difficult. There's no place to go. And if there was a place to go, you couldn't get a plane. So <laughs> I haven't been to India since at least before the virus. I've been that's a lot of places I haven't been since before the virus. Yeah. Things are changing very fast. And 
and i guess uh, we are i guess as a as a, as a people we are very optimistic even though we have all these challenges we just think things will be better and we actually are starting to see change on the ground right i i, I you know one of the things that our western friends tell us always when they come to bombay mumbai is they're shocked at no one stops at the red lights on the traffic lights <laughs> and it's so dangerous but uh, you know what you come now you know B- bombay's got those close circuit tv cameras all over the place uh, and you see people actually stopping before the pedestrian crossing it's 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 revolutionary if you will well rahul yes india has been changing is changing and it you know it's an astonishing country in many many ways uh, and it is getting less bad i won't say it's getting great yet but it's certainly getting less yeah, bad yeah we have a long way to go so we are, you know as equity master we are die hard optimists on india uh, we believe that uh, things are finally turning around and it's going to take time it's going to take several several many many years to sort of reflect but but we are hopeful <laughs> we well, see Yes, I see that India is changing and turning around, as you put it. But, Raul, I've been seeing that for forty years. That's it's true. Like, <laughs> it's a little, you know, as recent as nineteen eighty, India was richer than China. Right. I mean, you know the rest of that story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That that that's so. Since you mentioned China and a comparison with India, I want to spend uh, the next uh, few minutes talking to you about. investing in times of war but so <laughs> the one theme that we look at at equity master is that uh there is a level and is very visible there's a certain level of tension that is building up in the world you have the russia ukraine thing you have the china taiwan thing india and china have had a skirmish 2 years ago you know india pakistan always at loggerheads uh and there are more flashpoints in the gulf there are flashpoints right so uh i you know i don't want to sound uh, you know someone who's not concerned but looking purely from an investment angle how's over the last 4 5 decades how have you looked at wars and investing and if you can share some stories of how you dealt with them and how it turned well, one of the things i have learned either from experience or from reading is that if you invest in a country at war or civil war and you have staying power you're probably going to make a lot of money uh if you have staying power and if, unless you get at the beginning of the war but it is the war starts winding down or, or getting long in the tooth it's usually wise to invest in a country at war or civil war to be sure you have staying power because things can go wrong uh, i would like to invest in russia and ukraine now i cannot because i'm an american but i don't know if you, you, you what's what the rules are in india but those are places that i would be looking for investments now if i could and yeah. i i have seen that many times throughout history well officially india loves russia so we should be fine <laughs> Very, well i have to leave that to you I, i i'm not giving you investment advice i'm just telling you <laughs> that historically yeah. if you invest in a country at war either of them uh, you often will make a lot of money yeah could you give uh, could you share a little bit more on this in the from the past from your experience of uh, well, i'll give you the couple of big obvious ones germany in the 1940s <laughs> japan in the 1940s oh my gosh would you be rich 
if you'd invested in Germany in 1946 or even 1945, and likewise Japan. Those are a couple of clear examples. Vietnam, if you invested in Vietnam, you know, in the 80s, say, uh, after the war was ending, uh, there are many examples that when there's a war, everything is depressed. Nobody, prices are certainly very cheap. Nobody has any energy or drive or anything else. But if you can go in with a clear head and do some research, you might find great opportunities. Mm-hmm. For instance, right now, it's, it's more of the virus, but for instance, airlines all over the world and anything to do with travel or tourism got to demolished. Well, Raul, I know that we're going to fly again someday. You know, we're not going to take the boat to London. We're going to fly again. So maybe they're great opportunities. I mean, this is not war, but this is a disaster or catastrophe. And if you find catastrophe or war, you might find opportunities. Yeah, and uh, Jim, putting on your commodities investor hat, uh, how do you see this cycle playing out? I know in the last few weeks, there's been a sell-off already in commodities, but what's your take on this whole super cycle uh, in the commodities sector? How are you well, looking at it? There's been a big rally in commodities. Uh, yes, in the last few weeks, it's come down to a certain extent, but most commodities are still up uh, nicely over the past few months, uh, if you will. Corrections are normal in any market. You know that as well as I do, Raul. Um, in my view, we're having a correction. Uh, you know, the correction may mean that peace is going to come to Ukraine. I don't know what it means, if anything. It may just be a normal market correction. But if it means there's peace coming to Ukraine eventually, if peace comes, it'll be a great time to buy commodities because they'll be down and governments will start printing money again. People will think everything is okay. And I would buy them up, buy more. Well, that's a very interesting perspective. You know, whoever I ask this question to, uh, they usually talk of the supply side. And they say if the if the war sort of eases down, all the commodity supply chains that have got damaged in the recent months, they will open up and there'll be a you know a lot of supply. And you're looking at that as possibly an opportunity to get in. You're not giving advice, but generally it's in terms of a trend, because sooner or later the world will get back to printing money and growth and all. And from that bottom, you can actually nicely, you know, relatively low risk trade and see it rise to normal levels. Well, it always mm-hmm. You know, during war, people don't plant much wheat. You know, Ukraine and Russia are huge producers of wheat. They, they're not planting a lot. Of, I mean, they're planting some, but not like they used to. So that would mean that the supply is going to be limited for a while anyway. There are changes taking place in the world. For instance, it looks like we're going to have electric vehicles. Well, electric vehicles use several times as much copper as a petrol vehicle and people have not been opening copper mines. So there are changes taking place in supply demand. So there may be opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Okay, that's about war and and thanks for that perspective. Very thought provoking. Uh, Let me just go back one thing about uh, commodities. Um, Something agriculture for instance has been a disaster for decades uh, all over the world. The average age of farmers in Japan is 66. In America, it's 58. And all over the world, they're not, I mean, the highest rate of suicide in the UK is in agriculture. 
agriculture has been a disaster for a long time. So well, either it's going to get better, we're not going to have any clothes, we're not going to have any food. Okay. So I would suspect that things will get better in agriculture and other commodities. So if I can ask one probing question on that, of course, we're not giving investment advice and all that. Uh, how does one play agriculture for the long term? You well, buy the best way, of course, is to buy a farm and become a farmer. Uh, I'm not doing that. I, don't, I wouldn't be any good at it. I'd be hopeless at it. But if you can buy a farm, you're going to make huge amounts of money on the things you produce. Your land is going to go up in price. Everything is going to go right for you if you know how to farm and if you like being in the sun, for instance. So that's the best way to play. If you don't want to do that, buying futures, if you're, if you're good at it, you'll make a fortune in a week, can go broke in a week as well in futures. So be sure you know what you're doing. Probably the best way is to buy an index with it. Many studies show that index investing is better than most active managers. Uh, you can buy companies that, pro that produce tractors or seeds or fertilizer or something. There are various ways to invest in agriculture and other commodities. Okay, great. That's helpful. Uh, let's move to investing in times of inflation. Again, you've seen inflation cycles for decades. When you see inflation, like what you're seeing now, and you can go back in the past and sort of give us context, how does it change your thought process when it comes to looking at the way you've invested or the way you're planning to invest in incremental funds? Well, normally when there's inflation, there's also higher interest rates and various changes that take place in the world. And if you invest in the things that are going up in price, you're probably going to make a lot of money. Uh, if you invest in things that are affected by higher prices, you're not going to do so well. So if you own silver, for instance, I mean, India has a lot of silver, uh, you might make money if you own the things that go up in price. In inflationary times. In inflationary yeah. times, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Especially in inflationary times. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about how, you know, you, you buy silver, you, you were mentioning. My question is that given the, given the situation where the U.S. has really printed a whole lot of money, the world's largest debtor nation, inflation is rising rapidly. Could it be that this time around, to get a grip on the situation that is there, the Federal Reserve may end up doing something that could really damage or hurt the growth prospects of the world for years to come? So <laughs> how do you reconcile that in your investment philosophy, in the investment process? It already has, but the, one of the great things about the investment world, it's always changing, which is one of the reasons I like the investment world. Uh, nothing that you think is going to happen is going to happen. The world's always changing, and that gives you opportunities and fun. At least fun if you get it right going forward. Yes, the U.S. is never, no country in history has ever printed as much money as the U.S. is printing now, and it cannot be good for the world cannot be good for the U.S. dollar. No currency has stayed on top for more than 100 years or so. The U.S. has been up there a long time. It uh, doesn't mean it has to stop. But, you know, for instance, uh, in recent years, the U.S. has been, if you have the world's international medium of exchange or reserve currency, anybody in the world is supposed to be able to use it for anything, buy drugs, your girlfriend, a yacht, a car, a house, whatever you want. 
But the U.S. has been changing those rules. If Washington doesn't like you, they put sanctions on you or they take your assets away, they do whatever they want. Well, many people in the world are starting to say, wait a minute, that's not the way it's supposed to work. So some countries are starting looking because of economic and political reasons for something to compete with the dollar, India, Russia, China, Brazil, various countries are working. That move has accelerated because of what's happened because of this war with the US just confiscating people's assets and blocking people's assets. So it's going to accelerate to move away from the dollar. I don't like this, Raul, I'm an American, but it's, I can see it's happening. It's not gonna happen this month, don't worry. It takes a while, but that's going to be a major gigantic change in the world as the world looks for something to compete with the US dollar. Now your next question should be, well, what's it going to be? I don't know. I hope that you can tell me. I hope that Equity Master can tell me because I am looking to see what it is that's going to compete with the dollar. In theory, it would be the renminbi, the Chinese currency, but that's absurd because the renminbi is a blocked currency. You can't just go on the internet and buy and sell renminbi like you can euros or dollars or something. So I don't know what it's going to be. It could be the gold coins that are probably on your table in front of you. It could, it, be, gold. It could be gold and silver. It's unlikely Likely. because that's very complicated to do that. But if things get bad enough, fast enough, who knows? People may try gold again. Yep. Okay. Uh, how would you define your investment style? Buy low and sell high. <laughs> <laughs> Simplest strategy in the world works all the time. Problem, of course, is what's low and what's high. Um, if there's anything, I try to find things that are depressed. Usually, if they're depressed, they're ignored. Nobody's paying attention. And if you can find something that is no ignored and therefore cheap, where a positive change is taking place, you might make a lot of money. So cheap and change. I'm looking for something that's cheap, a company, an industry, whatever, a country where there are changes, positive changes taking place, major positive change taking place. Uh, from your long uh, experience, can you pick out one such uh, experience you had where you picked up something at the bottom and how it played out, just for context? Well, commodities in the late 90s, you know, nobody wanted to. Merrill Lynch, the largest American broker at the time, closed its commodity department because there was no interest. I mean, it was cheap and it was people were ignoring it. That's one. China, certainly. Nobody, I told you before, everybody said Japan, Japan, Japan. I said, no, no, China, China, China. So, I mean, those are a couple of examples that have, have worked. What do you think is happening in China now with this whole, uh, I, I was reading the other day, I think it's a trillion dollars or it's two trillion dollars of wealth destroyed in Chinese tech companies uh, where well, they hit them hard. How, how do you think it's going to play out? In the long term. Well, a lot of money has been destroyed in international and in any tech companies in the last few years. So it's not just China. We certainly have there. The Chinese market has had a big correction. It has to have other markets as well. And since China, since uh, tech companies were the most popular in all markets, obviously, and they were the most expensive, obviously that's where you've had the biggest corrections. You always do when there's a correction. The high flyers go, go down the most. That's what's happening. <laughs> now, some of the things that have happened in China, uh, I mean, the, the 
I can remember a few years ago going to China and I, everywhere I went, there were all these offices opening up with kids on computers tr trying to connect people to make loans. They'd call you up and say, Raul, you need, you need a loan? Okay, we'll get you a loan. Then they'd call Sally and say, Raul needs money. No credit checks, no nothing. And they would just put together loans. You could see an unbelievable bubble waiting to burst. That's Beijing has been cracking down on that. If you ask me, they should have cracked. They should never have gotten out of control in the first place. So some of the things they've done have been good, but it's caused stocks to come down dramatically. Uh, this is something we've seen before, Raul. This is not my first rodeo. This is the way the world often works. And that's what's been happening in China. They had excesses. They've been cracking down on the excesses, which has an effect on stocks, on you and me and other investors. But also, come on, I mean, uh, tech companies everywhere have come down a lot. They are the high flyers. Is, uh, is global tech uh, hated enough uh, for people to start taking interest in that? Well, if you know what you're doing, of course, because they've come down a lot. And if we're going to have a big right, let's say, I'll give you an example. Let's say there's peace in Ukraine. <laughs> then you're going to have a big rally because wheat prices are going to come down. Oil prices are going to come down. Many prices are going to come down. Yes. People will say inflation is okay. The central banks will say, okay, inflation is, we solve that problem. And they're going to print a lot more money. And so you're going to have a big, big rally in stocks and investments all over the world. Not wheat, wheat and oil will go down, but stocks will <laughs> go up for a while. The central banks will be printing money again. And so we can have another big rally, maybe the last rally, probably be the last rally, but that could well happen depending on how the world changes. And I don't know if there's going to be peace in Ukraine. I just made that a hypothetical suggestion yeah. that if something like that happens, the consequences would be. Yeah, I, I, was, I was reading somewhere that the Russia-Ukraine war is already an exception. Usually the wars that have been fought in recent decades, they don't last this long. They last, I think, on an average, someone said 100 days or something. And this one is just carrying on and on. And from what I read yesterday, we are recording this in about, you know, around the 22nd of July. Uh, I read just the other day that uh, Russia has announced that they are expanding their motives for their aims in Ukraine. So this could go on for long. Let's see how it plays out, right? Uh, well, I have no idea. It's, a, it's an absurd war, but rather all wars are absurd. All wars. Uh, they've always been absurd. So yeah. I don't know how this is going to play out, but if something happens and we have peace, it's going to have dramatic consequences. Yeah. It's going to come. We just don't know when, right? Okay. Uh, another favorite wait, topic. Wait a minute. Us. If you watch Equity Master, you'll find out when. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, we the got point. the crystal ball. We got the crystal ball, right? <laughs> yes. No one knows about that. Anyways, uh, one of our core themes on the Investor Hour is talking about asset allocation. And the reason we do that is because we believe in the long run, it is equally important to get your allocation right than to get the individual trade right, right? So <laughs> talk to us about what you think about allocation, its importance, and if you could share how you 
do allocation? How do you allocate your wealth? Well, you, you, you try to find the right assets, the ones that are going to go up the most, and that's how you make money. Um, I told you I look for things that are cheap where there's positive change taking place. And if I find something like that, whether it's a country or a group, then I try to buy it. If it's a group, for instance, then I will buy several stocks in that group because if, a, if something is changing for an industry, then everybody is going to benefit. And so it's, I find it's better just to buy everything or as many as you can because the whole industry is going to change if the, economy, the economics of any industry change. That's the way I do it. Now, I don't sit down and say, okay, asset allocation, how much should I have in this and that and the other? I just try to find opportunities and act. And usually if I find a lot of opportunities, who knows, then I might wind up with a lot of stocks or a lot of bonds or a lot of India. It depends on where the opportunities are. I don't do asset allocation. I don't sit and say, okay, I got to have 40% in stocks and 15% in bonds, et cetera. The, the market and the opportunities lead my asset allocation. But I don't have asset allocation. I'm just telling you how it evolves. Very interesting. So for you, the allocation is a result of your investment decision. It's not it's the a, plan. It's a result of what I find opportunities. Yes. Well, that's one way to do it. Uh, well, if I find huge opportunities in commodities and none in stocks, I might have 100% in commodities and zero in stocks. It just depends on what's going on in the world. But in your case, of course, you, you have the decades of experience, you're seasoned, you're damn good at what you do. So you can do that. But I guess for a Lee uh, investor, it's important to diversify your risk by uh, uh, well, investing across segments, probably. I will say to you, Raul, that diversification is something, it's not a way to get rich. Henry Ford didn't, didn't diversify. Henry Ford put all his assets into cars and got rich. Uh, Diversification is something that brokers came up with so they don't get sued. If they do get sued, they win the, they can win the lawsuit. Uh, but if you want to get rich, you, you put all your eggs in one basket, but you watch the basket very, very carefully. If you're right, you're going to get very rich. If you're wrong, you're going to go broke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I had to ask you this question. Uh, and maybe we spoke about it a bit uh, from your early uh, you know, career, but which has been the single biggest investment mistake uh, in your 40, 50 years of uh, doing this? Well, I think I probably told you about it when I uh, had a great success. Uh, 1970, yeah, you yeah, short America. I, yeah. And then I waited and waited and did everything perfectly and sold short and lost everything, lost everything, even though all the companies eventually went bankrupt. Uh, there was a time in 1980 when, I, when oil was going through the roof. Uh, I shorted oil on a Friday. Over the weekend, Iran and Iraq went to war. Well, that was a big mistake for the price of oil skyrocketed, as you can imagine. Now, you might say that was bad luck. No, no, I'm saying it wasn't bad luck. Somebody had done their homework and knew that the armies were moving, that somebody was moving to the frontier to go to war. I, I didn't know. Because I didn't do enough homework. Uh, you could say, oh, that's absurd. You, how would you know? But well, somebody knew. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Uh, no discussion with you is complete without discussing gold. 
again? Without discussing gold, gold. Yeah. yeah so uh, talk to us about uh, gold. Just tell our viewers uh, the investment thesis or the lack thereof of gold from your perspective. Well, everybody should own some gold and silver um, as insurance policies, if nothing else. I mean, I'm an old peasant, Raul. I know that when things go bad, I better have some gold in the closet. I better have some silver under the bed over there because I know that I need that protection if things collapse. So first of all, just as insurance, but second, if you get your timing right, you can make a lot of money. There have been times when gold has gone through the roof but silver's gone through the roof, but that's a matter of timing. So my first is everybody should own some as insurance, but if you can get the timing right, you'll make a lot of money. I'm not buying either right now because I expect the correction to continue. Uh, who knows? I'm not good at timing. But if I, I'm going to buy more of both somewhere along the line, if I were doing it today, I would buy silver. Silver is cheaper on a historic basis than gold. But I'm not buying either right now. But and uh, everybody should know about gold and silver because everybody should own some as insurance, if nothing else. So, uh, you know, Jim, when in typically they say in inflationary times, you know, gold should do well, silver should do well. But uh, this time around, uh, gold did not really do much at all. In fact, uh, I think it's it's even lower than uh, the pandemic. Uh, uh, time in uh, April. It's it's is it lower than April twenty now? April twenty twenty. Well, I'm a little confused by that because gold made all time highs a few months ago. Uh, yeah. Somebody somebody Some bought a lot of gold. They went to all time highs. Yeah, yeah. Silver you, didn't, as I said. Silver is cheaper on a historic basis. Yeah. Uh, gold and silver both have been correcting, but a lot of things have been correcting recently. Oil, everything, wheat, everything. Yeah. yeah. Is that, is that uh, in your view, is that like a fear that the world is about to slow down quite dramatically? People are like well, stepping for back. For some reason, well, I know, yes, if you have, I'm sure the world is going to slow down dramatically. We've had central banks raising interest rates, cutting back on money printing. So, yes, America's had the longest expansion in its history since 2009. It could go on for 20 years, who knows, doesn't have to stop, but it's already the longest in history. So maybe we're getting closer to the end. I said, I expect another big rally and that will probably be the last because I see lots of signs, you know, at the end of any big bull market, lots of new people come into the market. They call their friends and say, oh, I've discovered this thing called the stock market. It's fun and you can make a lot of money and it's easy, it's easy to make money. It's uh, SPACs. SPACs have been around for 300 years, but SPACs often have another run when the bull markets lasted a long time. I mean, we've all seen this movie before. What about cryptos? Well, did they interest you ever? No. Uh, well, all money is going to be on the computer. It already is in China. China, you cannot take a taxi with money. You have to use your phone to pay. You cannot buy an ice cream in China with money. Every country is working on it. The Chinese are ahead, but eventually all money is going to be on, on the computer. But I don't think, for instance, when the U.S. said this, okay, here's this is money now, but you can use something else if you want to. 
That's not the way bureaucrats think. That's not the way politicians think. They want control. They want to know everything that's happening. So uh, my view is that if it's successful, if cryptocurrency is successful, the governments will Shut it down. outlaw it or control it or tax it or something. doesn't mean if it's just trading vehicles, why not? Who cares? Uh, I know people who have traded and made a lot of money. Mo many of them have already disappeared and gone to zero. But if there are good traders. I'm not even trying. I'm a bad trader and I don't have an interest. Okay. If I thought someday there was going to be some real use for it, I would probably be more interested. Great. So to kind of wrap up, I've got this last couple of questions for you, Jim. Uh, this one, of course, I guess will wrap up your current views. If you if you had a hundred thousand uh, dollars lying spare change somewhere in that apartment of yours, uh, where would you put it to use? Well, if I had a hundred thousand dollars, I'd go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, I'd go to the beach and lie there for a long time. Uh, if I were investing today, I would probably, I own a lot of dollars, as I've told you. I don't know if I would buy them now because they've been so strong in recent weeks, but I would probably buy agriculture, agricultural index. Um, if I were doing something now, I would buy an agricultural index. Uh, but the problem is, I just said, I expect a rally to come soon. So I would buy commodities uh, because they're low and they would probably drop more because people would think, okay, inflation's over, we don't have to worry. And I would buy stocks. The wilder stocks, the better. The, the what stocks, sorry? The wilder, you know, the oh, Amazons. The, yeah, the, okay, yeah, the, yeah, those yeah. are the ones that will go up the most because those people, those people, I mean, people still think those stocks are great. Yeah, and they've fallen the most, I guess, in some senses. In the, in the well, largest I might stock, buy yeah. Japan. I mean, I, I own Japanese ETFs. I'd probably buy Japan uh, ETF. The Bank of Japan prints money every day, and they say they're not going to stop. And they print money and buy ETFs. So Japanese ETFs. I own Japanese ETFs. I'd probably buy more if I had $100,000 today. Uh, things like that. Okay, so uh, my in my original uh, you know uh, uh, list which I wanted to go through you, I was going to ask you which books would you recommend, but you know, I'm going to flip that question. So uh, let's say you're in India, and let's say you bump into Prime Minister Modi somewhere or or our Finance Minister, what advice would you give them? Resign. Really? <laughs> Resign. <laughs> Uh, you know, Mr. Modi's great. He's great PR. He's fabulous on TV and in the still talking to people. But I don't say Mr. Modi was great when he was a provincial governor, but he doesn't seem to have done much since then. He talked to him. I oh, I bought India because I thought he was going to win, and because all he said. But I don't see that he has done very much for India. Now, there are obviously, people who disagree with that. But no, I don't see much. I, if I were Mr. Modi, Mr. Modi, I would say, listen, you've got to deregulate agriculture. You've got India has had great agriculture throughout his at times in its history. You've got to weather the soil, the people. 
I would change all the regulations and controls on agriculture and make India a great agricultural nation again. I would close the bureaucracy. Uh, I would make the currency completely convertible. I would make it totally legal for foreigners to buy and sell Indian assets. Uh, you know, if you want to invest in India, it's a nightmare, whether it's stocks or the currency or open a shop. If you want to open a shop, if you're a foreigner, India doesn't make it easy. I would abolish the bureaucracy. Yeah. I, I think that's the pet theme. Get rid of the bureaucracy. <laughs> All of us agree with you on that. No, no debate over there. Okay, so with that, Jim, fascinating discussion as always. Very thought-provoking. Thank you very much for your time. I had bet with my colleague you're going to show me a gold coin on the chat, but he showed me a silver coin. Yes, well, silver is cheaper. Silver is cheaper, eh? right? There's the signal yes. right there. So thank you very much once again. Thank and you, Ram. Let's have do again. it again. I hope we thank do you. it again sometime. Or I hope I see you in India. Yeah, that'll be even better. That and be I hope great. you get through the, all the bureaucracy of the airport and come perfectly happy this time around. I hope you and keep up the good work at Equity Master. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.